Hey, hey, it's Mark Wallstrom, and uh, welcome again to the Speaking of Justice podcast. Uh, this is our uh, third season, second edition, and have we got a guest for you today. It is going to be... I, I, I've, been, I've been waiting weeks for this interview. Uh, we're going to have uh, Judge Frederick Block, and who is a well... Re- well-respected, I guess well-respected isn't, uh, is not descriptive enough. He's highly respected and admired, well-known, just an incredibly thoughtful jurist, uh, 25 years on the federal bench. Uh, And uh, we're going to be talking to him about a book uh, he just wrote, just published, called Crimes and Punishments, Entering the Mind of a Sentencing Judge. And, uh, you know, the Honorable Fred Block, uh, as I said, uh, he's a senior judge, uh, U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York. Uh, he was nominated by uh, then-President Clinton in 1994 and has been on the, uh, the, the court ever since, uh, obtained senior status in 2005. And, uh, you know, he is a legendary sentencing judge, and he maintains a full caseload in addition to his writing and speaking schedule. Uh, he's had other books. Back in 2017, he wrote another book called uh, Race to Judgment, Disrobed, an inside look at the uh, life and work of a federal judge. I wrote that in 2012. Uh, prolific speaker, author, thought leader. And uh, this particular book, uh, I, I just I think it's going to be tremendous, both for our lawyers who are interested uh, in sentencing and uh, federal guidelines and things of that nature, but ordinary citizens, and we are at a point in our society, you know, the the podcast is speaking of justice, and we have hit kind of a critical point, I'm going to be asking, uh, you know, Judge Block to kind of delve into this a little bit, in our society where people have begun to recognize we have built a system uh, by design and by default, and sometimes by accident, that has created a prison complex in the United States. Uh, we have people who now um, are sentenced to incredible sentences uh, because of minimum mandatories and three-strike laws. Uh, judicial discretion has been taken away. Uh, tremendous leverage given to prosecutors and how people are charged. And you know, Judge Block in this book, I mean, he examines all of these issues and from the perspective of somebody who's lived it, somebody who has been working in sentencing, who understands these laws, understands these dynamics. And I, I, you, I read this book front to back, uh, and it is, it is a tremendous book. So we're really looking forward to a special guest. I mean, you know, this is, uh, this is the type of thing that we're trying to do on the podcast. These are the kind of discussions and conversations that we want to have, where we don't just talk about oh, injustice, or that's an unfair sentence, or who is that prosecutor, and why was this person charged, and you know, the rich get off, and the poor go to jail. I mean, there's all of those big-picture narratives. But you really have to also have the granular detail of somebody who lives it, somebody who is impacted by sentencing guidelines, Supreme Court decisions, appellate decisions, and and has a perspective of somebody who loves and respects our Constitution and our judicial system, and is also strong enough and candid enough to talk about the faults and the flaws. And I, I think at this point in our 
uh, in our nation. You know, there's so many people looking at what we have constructed and what's going on uh, in the area of sentencing and inequities and, you know, maybe, maybe racial disparities. And, you know, there is this perception that the poor do not get justice and the rich get off. And, you know, uh, whether that perception is accurate or partly accurate, we don't know. But, you know, to have somebody who can step in, talk about these things, write about them in such a thoughtful, uh, thought-provoking way, uh, you know, it's just, a, just an honor to have them. So don't want to delay too much longer. Uh, we're just going to have a brief little break in the music here. And then uh, joining us on the other side of this music is going to be uh, Judge Block. So sit with me for about 10, 15 seconds, and we'll get him on the line. Okay, well, we are now joined by our guest, uh, the Honorable uh, Frederick Block. Uh, as I said before, he is a uh, senior judge in the U.S. District Court uh, for the Eastern District of New York. Uh, judge Block, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's nice to be here, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Great. Well, you know, we were just talking a little bit, and I've, uh, you know, my, my preview, uh, you know, part for the audience, I've talked about the book. Uh, I'll mention it uh, more than a few times in our conversation. It's uh, Crimes and Punishments, uh, Entering the Mind of a Sentencing Judge. Uh, and, you know, we were talking in our little pre-interview. You said you had a case. Uh, you just kind of stepped off the bench, and we're talking about, you know, some of the issues in this book, which we're going to cover. But why don't you tell us kind of what your, your experience was just today, and uh, that might frame and, and, and form our conversation for the rest of the uh, rest of the uh, podcast. Yeah. So I wasn't planning on this when I woke up this morning, but it happened. And it's really a powerful template of why sentencing is the most difficult and the most profound aspect of a district court judge's work. The circuit court judges don't deal with this. They deal with appellate review. The Supreme Court doesn't deal with it. But the district court is really all about sentencing. Because when you have the civil aspect of the law, you have statutes, you know, you figure out what the law is. There's not going to be a lot of variation on the theme. But when it comes to sentencing, we have 23 of my colleagues here. And what I just went through, my guess is that I would have 23 different sentences that would have happened. Uh, And uh, it really makes you realize why people always say that sentencing is the most important, compelling and the most difficult job of the district court judge. So what happened here, mm-hmm. uh, basically, was the following. Uh, I had to sentence, and this just happened 10 minutes ago. So you're talking about something that's really hot off the press. Yeah. A uh, bad criminal defendant who did some real bad things, a couple of Hobbs Act robberies, one of which was of a jewelry store where he and four other of his co-defendants went into this place wound up taking $500,000 of jewelry and permanently maiming the owner of the store. Mm. He lost his hearing in one ear, and it was a horrific crime. No excuse for this whatsoever. However, uh, the defendant that I sentenced today was a profound cooperator. Okay. And uh, if not for his cooperation, the four co-defendants would not have pled guilty or would not have been sentenced from 15 to 20 years of incarceration for being part of this horrendous crime. 
So we have now uh, a proposed recommendation by the government a, uh, to uh, treat him as a cooperator, a profound cooperator, and the government issued what we know as a 5K1 letter, uh, meaning that uh, they recognize that if not for his cooperation, these other people would not have been brought to justice, would not have pled guilty. And uh, I listened to the government tell me how uh, important he was mm-hmm. to the prosecution of these cases. So here was a telltale example of one of these things that sentencing judges have to do, and that is to determine how to handle a cooperator. Uh, and while I reference this in my book, uh, I wish, you know, now I would write another chapter to the book and I would talk about <laughs> the case, the smart case that I just had finished today, because it talks about the cooperator. How do you deal with somebody? How do you sentence a cooperator? And we have total discretion. Really? Once the government says that this is a cooperator, mm-hmm. there's no mandatory minimum at all, and I can sentence this person to time served, to 10 years, to 15 years, to 20 years, anywhere in between. Mm-hmm. And the sentences that we give for cooperators, I think are probably about 25, 30% of all the sentences in Brooklyn are cooperation deals. And the whole idea is that, you know, you send a, a little fish out to capture the big fish, but not for cooperators. Yeah we would not have a criminal justice system such as we have. Yeah. So there's a telltale example what to do. Uh, and the uh, I could have sent him to 20 years. I could have sent him to anything from zero to 20. How do you do that? Yeah. What I mean, what, what, yeah, what, what did you do? Yeah. yeah, what enters into the mind of the sentencing judge to quote from the cover of my book in deciding what number to pull out of the hat in this particular case? Wow. So I'm sitting here talking to you right now, still sort of recovering from the emotionality that went on in the courtroom when the defendant, who's 53 years of age now, turned and faced his accuser, who was in court, the victim, and profusely apologized. And this grown man was weeping legitimately from head to toe while he was face-to-face with the victim, apologizing, you know, uh, for his, his... his grief he caused them. So you talk about the human dimension. So does this enter into the mind of a sentencing judge? Should it enter into the mind of a sentencing judge? What are the human dynamics at play? And that really shapes the reason why I wrote the book. Uh, Because people don't have a true appreciation of the uh, uh, human dynamics of uh, sentencing somebody to prison. So I can go on and on and on, of course, but I want you to ask me some questions so we have a good interview and not one where the judge is just doing all the talking. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the fascinating thing to me, I mean, that's, that, that is a, you know, like you said, you're right off of the vacation, you walk in from that, and you, you have that discretion. And, you know, we kind of go back to, uh, you know, the theme of where we are is, 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 you know, our audience is probably split 50-50 between uh, lawyers and non-lawyers. And there tends to be, this misconception that judges are these all-powerful people with, you know, arbitrary uh, discretion. It's kind of like you said, you know, you've got the opportunity or the the uh, power and authority to sentence this cooperator in a way many people think of a, a judge 
uh, acting, which is, you know, uh, he can give him nothing or he can give him, you know, throw the book at him. Uh, and it's up to the judge to make a wise and uh, reasoned decision. Uh, you, you know, how, how, how do you, you know, make that determination? Is it just because you've, you've, you know, 25 years on the federal bench, you've seen so much, you, you know, you get a, an instinct. How much of it is, you know, uh, reasoned by what you feel is appropriate and the the system will quote unquote bear or tolerate, and how much is is just your personal view? I mean, you have a guy who's you said profoundly sorry. Uh, his you know his cooperation was essential in bringing other people to justice and making sure that they serve time for this terrible crime. I mean, it, what 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 in that case where you do have latitude, uh, you know, how do you how do you make that that call? I mean, it's a fascinating. Uh, I mean, I, I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. How do you do it? Well, one of my law clerks said that he doesn't want to ever be a judge because he doesn't think he can handle the sentence. I get that from time to time. Yeah. Look, Mark, there are a lot of variables that are at play here. Mm -hmm. And uh, if uh, the public thinks that this is something which is just written down in black and white and you do the time, you do the crime, yeah, you do the time, but how much time? Yeah. So, you know, it's easy to say that, you know, you did the crime, you do the time. But what sentencing is all about is how much time. You're not going to sentence everybody to jail for the rest of their lives, but maybe some people think that's what should happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is really the compelling part. But the most critical variable, I think, is the passage of time and the experience you have doing this type of work. I'm in my 24th. I'm going to start my 25th year. I'm a little different now than I was in year one. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first variable that you know, I can share with the public is that uh, you don't want, if you're representing a criminal defendant, to be sentenced by a new judge. Yeah. Uh, because uh, they're going to be a little bit more cautious, and they're going to be more inclined to go down the straight and narrow. They mm -hmm. give a sentence maybe in the middle of the guideline range. You're not going to worry about getting reversed if you do that. You're not going to be worried about anybody calling you soft on crime and yeah. all that type of stuff. So a new judge is going to be, and I was too, uh, a little bit more cautious than one that has a little more security under her belt uh, with the passage of time. Uh, so you don't want to have a new judge. Uh, you don't want to have an old judge either. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because uh, they have a different sense of uh, uh, the years that a person has lived. So we tell the story in the book, I think, about Judge Bartels, who passed away at the age of 99.9. Yes. Yeah, and he was still on the bench at the age, uh, that age, and uh, he was sentencing people when he was 95 and 96, and the story goes, and this is true, uh, that one lawyer said, Judge, if you give my client the uh, maximum of 20 years, it's like sentencing him to life. And the judge said, well, how old is he? He said, he's 70 years old. And the judge said, seems like a young man to me, and gave him the 20 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so you want to avoid the extreme. So that's a real powerful human factor. Uh -huh. And the book really, you know, trots out a lot of other human uh, dynamics yeah. that uh, obviously enter into your sentencing decisions based upon your life experiences, what may be in your subconscious. Take a hard look at what you're all about yes. when you're sentencing somebody to get an idea of what you may be thinking about. 
about what you may be motivated by because of your life experience. Yeah. Uh, and the book is designed to get people to open up their minds and think about all these things. Well, let's let's switch over to some. Now, now we talk about the the burden of, of a discretionary sentence, uh, but you know, a lot of the book you talk about, you know, the the construct of what our judicial system and prosecu- prosecution system, if you will, uh, has evolved into, and uh, you know, it's this kind of shift in power to prosecutors who have broad discretion and charging, and the way that they create a maximum only option, or they can pleaded as a misdemeanor. I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you kind of look at these cases. Uh, you know, we talk about that famous uh, three strikes case. Uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was the one in California. Uh, a lock, Lockyer versus Android. Uh, yeah. You know, where, you know, you, you reference that in the book and kind of, you know, talk about some of these, these things where you don't have discretion. What is the burden on you that when you're a judge and, you know, you have to, the law requires what you would deem an unjust, uh, though constitutional sentence, you know, through mandatory minimums or three strike laws. Um, that must be a tremendous burden when you have to, you know, uh, you want to adhere to the law, you know, you're, uh, you know, it's, it's what you're charged to do. How, how do you handle that? It is a very difficult thing, but you try to at least point out what you think is not right in the criminal justice system. And maybe if you speak, at it, and you write books, and you talk to the public, and Congress may hear you, it may, may, may just affect some change. So you sort of have this Pollyannish hope that you're doing some value, even if you have to sentence somebody to a mandatory minimum. So one of the chapters in the book mm-hmm. talks about mandatory minimums, and that takes away the judge's discretion. We talk about who should be sentencing somebody, the judge or Congress. And Congress, when it establishes a five-year or 15-year mandatory minimum, many times there's political motivation behind that. But when a judge is going to sentence somebody, he's free of politics, and he's trained to render maybe a more appropriate sentence and not be hemmed in by what the politicians may think is appropriate. Those are difficult situations. When I sentence somebody on a mandatory minimum basis, I tell the defender that, I'm just a messenger here. Congress has told me how I have to sentence you. Mm-hmm. Congress now is sentencing you, not Judge Block. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I write about mandatory minimums and the fact that I don't think that a judge's discretion should be imposed upon by the politicians. And I feel very strongly about that. And I know a lot of other people feel strongly about that as, as well. Yeah. So that's one of the chapters in the book. It's one of the areas, even though I have to do it, it's my oath of office, I still talk about how I think it's wrong, yeah. and hopefully by bringing the issue out to the public, well, there may be some changes in the future. We've had some changes in criminal justice reforms uh, because judges have spoken out about the three strikes and you're out. Yes. That still is an offensive thing. There are a lot of harsh sentences. We have to talk about that so there's an awareness, and that will perhaps produce some changes. Well, and the other thing I, I was not aware of, uh, you know, in, in reading through this is, you know, the judges can impose uh, punishments for crime for which the defendant was acquitted. And, you know, those yeah. that's that's one of the things when I was kind of going through this, uh, you know, again, we all kind of look at the court system and, and rightly or wrongly, many of us get, you know, our impression of the court system through TV, entertainment, you know, uh, you know, online, you know, uh, or, or, you know, televised uh, TV shows about the court system. 
And people don't really get this on a granular level until they experience it firsthand. And I was not even aware of that that point. Talk talk about that a little bit. I mean, how, how did how did that come about, and how do you handle something like that? And and is that uh, as a judge when you have um, you know that built into the law? I mean, in what cases does that apply? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I broke the book down, I think, into five or six chapters. Yeah. And they each deal with a different sentencing scenario. Yes. Uh, and uh, yes, when lawyers, let alone the general public, realize that a judge in sentencing has the power to consider uncharged criminal conduct and even acquitted conduct. Uh, and enter that into the, the into the formula, so to speak, for the sentence that comes out of the judge's mouth. People are shocked by that. Uh, if somebody hasn't been charged with a crime, how can you consider you know that person's behavior uh, for crimes that he's not been held accountable for uh, under the law in sentencing? And if somebody's acquitted, uh, how can you possibly, as a judge, in the face of an acquittal? considering the defendant's conduct that you find to be offensive in imposing a sentence. So those are the first two chapters in the book. And I explain in the course of that why and how it came to be that judges have this extraordinary power, notwithstanding what a jury may or may not do. I might add, though, when it comes to acquitted conduct, uh, I had chapter two of the book. Mm -hmm. I had a deal with sentencing somebody who was acquitted of murder, but he was convicted of drug conspiracy. And I had a lot of discretion yes. in the context of how to sentence that person, whether I should consider the fact that I thought the defendant you know, was guilty. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about the dynamics of that in chapter two. Uh, and um, you know, I, I can go on and on and on, but people are shocked when they see that. Yes. Uh, and when it came yeah, go ahead. Well, no, and, and, and it is shocking. And it, it's one of those things where you look at it, and again, you know, I mean, uh, we talk about the purpose of the podcast. There's a there's a huge gap in what we used to call civics education <laughs> uh, in America. And a lot of people, uh, you know, to that's why I think this book is is so important. You know, the ability, and you, you do take it through in such a, you know, a logical fashion, but also applying actual cases so that people can begin to grasp the factual basis behind it. And, you know, you talk about chapter two, which is acquitted criminal conduct. Uh, The other one, which is victim impact testimony, that chapter uh, really interested me because, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, victim impact testimony is overly emotional. It's theatric. It's this or that. It shouldn't apply to it. Uh, but it's also that opportunity where many times, you know, the victims don't really get a chance to speak in court. Maybe they're, you know, uh, it's the associated family or whatever. How much do you take victim impact testimony into account in sentencing? And what 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 place do you think that has in this whole process? You know, Mark, it's interesting because we had a victim testify just 20 minutes ago in yeah. this case that I just told you about. Uh, so one of the chapters in the book deals with victim impact testimony. Uh, where I sentenced uh, sex traffickers to 15 years. Mm. Uh, so I'm not necessarily an automatic nature of a liberal sentencer. I mean, it depends very much upon the nature of the case and what happens in a particular dynamic. Yes. Uh, and when I walked into the courtroom, I had a general sense the government was looking for 30 years for these people. And uh, I don't really, you know, make my mind up until I listen to everybody. I think the judge should not have predetermined what the sentence is. 
what's the purpose of a sentencing hearing if it's a hearing mm-hmm. if it's a done deal. So there we had profound victims testify and it made an impact on me. Yeah. Together with the lack of remorse by these people who had, uh, who had kidnapped these young women and uh, forced mm-hmm. them into prostitution. Uh, and the sentence came up to 50 years. And I was astonished that I did that. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't planning on doing that, but it was clearly a case where the victim testimony by these young women made an impact upon me. Today was a different dynamic. Uh, the person who was uh, lost his hearing, who was physically assaulted in the course of his jewelry robbery, he spoke to me. And he uh, was not inclined to cut this guy a break at all. And I can understand why. We had a conversation. Yeah. And I explained to him that this person was a cooperator and uh, try to get him to understand why he was going to get a break because of this. I don't think he, I think he was tone deaf to that because I can understand that from his perspective, he was violated and he wanted everybody to go to jail regardless of whether they were a cooperator or not. Yes. In that case, the victim's testimony, did that make the same impact upon me as the uh, young women who were forced into prostitution? So it depends very much on the case and the circumstances. But regardless of whether it's example A or example B, these are tough things for sentencing judge to have to deal with. Yeah. Well, and that that and I can't even imagine it because again, I mean, it really does. You know, we you bring up a great, uh, I think, illustration as we we look at this in the book, is the desire to apply the law uh, as written, as well as. Uh, allow for the human element of being able to see the people that are standing before you in the situation and circumstances. So with that, I'd like to talk about sentencing guidelines. Uh, you know, it's something, it's kind of a new, I wouldn't say a new creation, but relatively new in the you know spectrum of U.S. history and U.S. judicial system that you have these sentencing guidelines that, you know, only a bureaucrat could love, I guess. <laughs> and as yeah. you go through, sometimes I was looking at this and I was like, you know, it's it, it's a formula. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how, because like you said, you know, this guy came in today and he, you know, you know, victim testimony and, you know, he wants everybody to get the same sentence and nobody should get any, get any slack. Um, talk a little bit about uh, guidelines. I mean, how, how are those constructed and how do you apply them and, and what latitude do you have in that? Well, so when you have a 5K1 letter, you have all the latitude in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, the guideline calculation uh, came out to like 220 months of incarceration, a long time, almost 20 years of jail, right? Yeah. So we go through the numbers and we're required to do that. And it is somewhat formulaic. He had two points for this, he had six points for that, he was a basic level, did he cooperate, did he not cooperate, did he accept responsibility, it's a number insisted, and you come to a total number of what the offense level guideline calculation is, the range. I, I don't find it bad to go through that exercise because it forces me to think a little bit about the nature of the crime and to see how uh, the guidelines uh, shake out. I don't find it to be a bad Thing. As long as you're not going to be committed to the uh, numbering uh, that comes out of the process. And yeah. because you don't want to really uh, mask what really is important to look at the human being, to look at all his personal life circumstances, to look at the nature of the crime. And under the law, we require to balance out the nature of the crime against the person's personal characteristics, his good yeah. deeds, whether he's rehabilitating himself 
And these are all intangibles that every judge is going to come to a different balance. There's no one formula that makes you balance it this way or that way. Uh, so uh, the guidelines I find to be of value, but I don't think that it should really overwhelm you. I think that once you get a new judge, would be more inclined to follow those numbers than a judge with more experience. Uh, and I think ultimately the intangibles that happen in the course of a person's life, uh, which may subconsciously, but uh, unconsciously affect her you know, judgment, uh, together with the particular dynamics of the particular case, is up to all these variables that enter into the sentencing process. And my gosh, I mean, there's no question that the judge makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me switch because uh, I think you know I think the next point you know we talk about you know the sentencing guidelines and the formulas and all that, but one, one thing I think is beginning to get on people's radar is this issue of the dramatic power, particularly in federal court, that prosecutors have in charging discretion. And the ability to use mandatory minimums to, uh, you know, essentially get people to knuckle under because the, uh, the the mandatory sentence is so bad. You know, you have people literally admitting to crimes that they feel they're innocent of just because they can't afford the sentencing risk or the cost. And, you know, I have a, a friend of my son's who wasn't in federal court who faced this very experience uh, in state court. And did two and a half years in prison to a crime he absolutely did not commit, but his family could not afford appropriate counsel. Uh, you know, it, the the penalty if he did get convicted was you know 25, 30 years. He was a young man; he's 21 years old at the time. Uh, you know, it was and the and the prosecutor just grossly overcharged the case, and it subsequently found out you know they needed you know uh, Arizona has the unfortunate. Uh, uh, system of, you know, an inordinate number of private prisons uh, that by contract have to be filled. And, you know, we have in many cases, you know, maybe, you know, the prosecutors would probably deny this in, in many instances, but, you know, the, the political pressure to keep the prisons full because the state has to pay for empty beds. So, you know, when you, when you have this shift in power to prosecutors in charging, talk a little bit about that for people, because I think that is a, an area that is really not uh, discussed enough as to the impact it has on the judge when a prosecutor can walk in and the jury doesn't even know that they could have charged them with a lesser offense. Uh, and I right. think you talk about that in the book. So you, you just expand we, on that a little bit. We, we, we do, Mark, and it's very, very, very valid and very important to talk about because we spoke just we, we just now about the enormous power of the judge, the sentencing power. But that's only when there's the opportunity to exercise that power. Mm -hmm. But we are many times on the receiving end, and we don't have any power whatsoever. So mandatory minimums would be an example where we don't have the power. Uh, we have to impose the mandatory minimum. About 13, 14, 15% of all criminal convictions are mandatory minimums now. Yeah. Uh, Congress uh, now has a, an affinity towards child pornography. We don't like it. Uh, but they have decided that it's politically sexy, I guess, mm -hmm. to say five years mandatory for this, 15 years for that. And those are telephone numbers. Now, I may sentence the person to 15 years myself, but, you know, I don't have that discretion. Yeah. So it's we're in the receiving end. The U.S. attorney has the ultimate power to decide how to indict. 
once again, they're on the receiving end. The U.S. attorney can decide that they're not going to charge the person with a crime that will require a 15-year mandatory minimum, uh, or they may decide to do that. And it varies from district to district. Mm. You're going to get U.S. attorney's offices in certain parts of the country, which may, may be more militant than other parts. Yeah. But that discretion on the part of the prosecutor, whether to charge the person with that third strike for stealing three golf balls, really is an enormous power uh, that the district court judge has nothing to do with. Uh, and I think that attention has to be called to making sure that the prosecutor is responsible, uh, that they're mature people, that they exercise sound judgment, and that they're not arbitrary in their decisions as to how to indict. In Brooklyn, in the Eastern District of New York, I think we have a very good U.S. Attorney's Office. Mm -hmm. They're exposed to a lot of diversity. They see an awful lot. They're highly skilled, especially selective. And I find, with few exceptions, that they're able to come before me and say, Judge, we don't think this should be a guideline sentence. We think it should be a below-guideline sentence. Yeah. Uh, their prosecutorial judgment, with few exceptions, I think is excellent. You do not find that in every U.S. attorney's office throughout the country. Yeah. You certainly do not find that where they had the three strikes, you know, indictment that automatically put this person in jail. Yes. Professor Cherminsky talks about Lockheed. We all know about that. So, uh, yes, uh, when you deal with Congress's power, coupled with the power of the U.S. attorney to decide when to indict, what crimes to charge, uh, you are dealing with a district court judge who doesn't have a lot of power. But where we do have discretion, then what enters into the mind of a sentencing judge is what I write about in the book. Well, I'm going to go to the last chapter here because I think it's a great it's a great coda for the book and and also for this conversation. We talk about the case of Chevelle Nesbeth, and who she was a young woman who's convicted of attempting to smuggle cocaine in the United States. And I think it's a wonderful illustration of, you know, an experienced, uh, you know, jurist like yourself and somebody looking at this and recognizing that being uh, a felon in the United States is, in many cases, a life sentence of an unbearable cost uh, for people because of the, not just the social stigma, but, you know, the professions that it precludes them from the banking, the housing, uh, you know, all of the things that go on uh, as a result of that. And, and you really spoke to that, I think, powerfully and how you handled that case. Can you just give our listeners just a little brief synopsis on this? Yeah, I think so, it's a great so Mark, case. It's a good, yeah, it's a good example of how uh, what a judge does, his hobby, the books he reads, uh, really as a practical matter may impact uh, how he uh performs his function as a judge. So uh, there's a telltale example. I happened to be reading at the time that Chevelle Nesbitt was being prosecuted for bringing drugs into this country in a suitcase. Uh, Michelle Alexander's polemic called The New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if I didn't read that book, uh, somebody recommended it to me, I thought it was worth reading, uh, uh, I would probably not have been involved in the, this collateral consequence dynamic. So uh, what you read, what a judge eats, what a judge, how a judge lives, where a judge is raised, all these things impact maybe subconsciously upon a judge's uh, sentencing discretion. So in that case, 
we had a prototypical situation of a young woman. She was a college student. She had great grades in college. She was studying to become a principal. She was looking forward to that career. She had done nothing but good deeds a whole life of poor and impoverished people. She was an ideal citizen. And she had a real bad hair day, inexcusable. Went down to Jamaica to visit her father, went with her boyfriend, came back with a suitcase of cocaine. Mm. And she was properly convicted, and I had a sentence her. And the guideline range was like 33 to 44 months, you know, and I could have put her in jail for uh, any period of time within that range, or maybe a little less under conventional sentencing dynamics. But I had read Alexander's book, mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, made this case that people who have served their time when they're supposedly free and rehabilitated themselves, they become constructive members of society. So they're not one of the 80% uh, recidivists who go back to jail. Uh, they have a hard time in ways which we can't possibly fathom. So yes, lawyers would come before me and they'd say, Judge, you know, my client's not going to be able to get a job now with this conviction and you should go soft on him or her and we get these general types of pleas that lawyers would toss out to me. But after I read Alexander's book, I put my uh, law clerks to work and they researched, well, what are the collateral consequences here that attach to a person once they serve their time. Yes. Uh, and lo and behold, the ABA had conducted a study where it identified in the states over 50,000 collateral consequences. Mm. Wow. Uh, the uh, federal government has over 170. Well, what are you talking about? So somebody's done their jail time. They're out on supervised release. They can't get public housing. They can't drive. They can't vote. Right. Uh, depends on state to state. In some states, they can't be a, 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 a warden. Uh, they can't be a fish and wildlife, you know, warden. I mean, yeah. some of these silly things all over the uh, all over the landscape. So Michelle Nesmith was not going to become a teacher anymore, and she was not going to have an easy time transitioning, even though she's a convicted felon. Yeah. So if I sentence her a year or two years in jail, she's going to get out, she's going to have a horrendous time. And I said, you know what? This is part of her sentence, what she has to deal with now in terms of these collateral consequences. So I wrote about that. Yes. And I think that I did something I feel really good about because I made the general public aware of this issue uh, and I didn't put it in jail. And I said that I think that a judge has to consider collateral consequences when balancing out uh, the sentencing discretion that he or she has. Uh, and now uh, our probation department has to apprise the judges of the collateral consequences mm. that a person faces. Lawyers are required to talk about it to the judge. The government's responsible to share that information with the judge. And I feel pretty good about that. But it all came from the fact that I happened to read Alexander's book. Before then, I'd never clue about collateral consequences. So we wrote all about that. And, you know, I feel so good about the fact that I did that. And hopefully it'll be of some value. I think it already has in terms of needed reform in that whole area of the law. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's, I could talk to you forever. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the, the time you're taking on this. And I just, uh, you know, we're, we're going to do everything we can to really push and promote uh, the book. Because as you just said, um, you know, it's the things that we read. It's the things that we expose ourselves to. You know, people are not aware of this. And we tend to go about our daily lives and there's a lot of noise. And boys, there are a lot of noise right now. Uh, and people aren't paying attention to, I've always said, you know, it's the, 
our courts are the one thing that, you know, a jury and a judge are the thing that stand between us having our life, liberty, property, you know, taken away from us and our ability to go there with representation, tell our story and, uh, and expect a fair and reasonable process. Uh, you know, it's the hallmark of the American system. And, and we tend to lose yeah. that at times and get distracted. So I think that this book is really important. Uh, we're going to try to get it to as many lawyers, but citizens, journalists, different people. We have a, a really neat, diverse audience as well. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have you back on again sometime. Uh, this yeah. has just been tremendous. Mark, let me make one disclaimer. Sure. I didn't write this book to make money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, People say, well, how many books do you sell? I, I don't know. I mean, I would like it to be given <laughs> because I think that there's a different value. People enjoy reading it. I'm getting very good uh, reactions from everybody who reads it. But my purpose in writing this, I'm a federal court judge. I get paid a, a decent wage for doing this job. Yeah. It, it's not to really get commercially successful, but to really try to do what I think is appropriate in terms of making people more aware mm -hmm. of these issues that we spoke about to, to some extent today. And I really appreciate the fact that the ABA is willing to uh, make the effort to join with me in yeah. getting the public to be a little bit more aware of things that are so important in our criminal justice system. Well, uh, Your Honor, uh, keep up the, the great work. Uh, you know, I think uh, Chimarezki made a great point. He said, if I ever or a family member of mine were ever to be sentenced, we would... Uh, all hope for a judge such as yourself uh, to be the person who uh, makes that final determination. And I, I think this book will be inspiring for a lot of uh, people who are currently judges and those who may be appointed in the future, uh, you know, to have these things in mind. So uh, I think you've got a much happier duty coming up. You mentioned you're going to be officiating in a marriage uh, ceremony. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you to that, uh, happier, uh, you know, element of your, of, of your duties. And, uh, just thank you again. I mean, this is, uh, this is wonderful and, uh, I appreciate so much having you on today. Well, keep up the good work, Bob. It's been a pleasure to do this. Great. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Okay, well, you know, that was a great phone call, great interview. Uh, maybe not my skills, but uh, certainly the opportunity to hear from Judge Block. Uh, you know, I think you uh, hopefully can understand why I was so excited about having him on. And, you know, I, I, again, I want to stress, you got to get this book. It's a great book. It's a great read, even from a human interest standpoint. The stories that are in there, you know, about the gaudy sentencing and, you know, uh, there's a lot of different things, uh, you know, people want to get into true crime and all this, but it, it is a very readable book. It's about 170 pages. And I also want to explain, it's, it's a very bipartisan. If you look at the uh, people who have uh, extolled this book, Erwin Chemerinsky, uh, Barry Sheck from The Innocence Project, uh, Michelle Malkin, you know, she's a conservative author, uh, investigative journalist, you know, Rachel Barco, you know, who's the author of Prisoners of Politics. Uh, and Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration, Alan Dershowitz. Uh, this is a book everybody is going to enjoy reading, sharing, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you have the opportunity to find it. Now, you'll be able to find this book on the American Bar Association uh, page. Go to theamericanbar.org, and just go to products and then inventory books, and you'll find it. And just put in Crimes and Punishments, Entering the Mind of a Sentencing Judge, uh, discount for uh, members of the ABA. It's a little bit more expensive for non-members. 
And uh, you don't have to be a lawyer to buy this book. Uh, and, I, and I would encourage many non-lawyers, journalists, uh, academics, other people, ordinary citizens. It's a great book. And as he talks about in that example, um, the, the ability to shape and change people's minds happens one conversation, one book at a time. And it's the sharing of knowledge. You know, we don't talk about our legal system. You know, we talk about the consequences. We talk about the annoyances. We might talk about it in the abstract, but you know, every day there are people in court whose lives are being changed forever, and they are impacted by the prosecutor's decisions, by the judge's decisions, by the quality of the counsel uh, that they receive, the access to the court. Uh, you know, these are these are the important, most element. Uh, elementally fundamental uh, protections that we have in our Constitution are manifested and exhibited in our court system. And we can't lose that. We can't allow things to get skewed one way or the other. You know, we want justice. You know, if somebody's committed a horrible crime and is a terrible person, they need to be punished and there need to be guidelines. But at the same time, you know, people who have made a mistake, people who have made a, a bad life choice, you know, we don't need to have an industrial prison complex. Uh, we don't need to, you know, pound our chest with, you know, mandatory minimums in many cases. You know, we want to have fair and reasoned judges. So, you know, to me, I think this is uh, it's a great opportunity to have them in. I look forward to uh, talking with other people. And I want to hear what you have to say. Go to our Facebook page, Speaking of Justice uh, podcast. Com. That's our regular webpage. You can just find us on Facebook by putting Speaking of Justice in your search bar and it'll pop right to it. Join our, our page, uh, learn more about it, uh, become involved in it, and uh, enjoy what we're doing. You know, I mean, I really think we've got something here, uh, you know, an opportunity for you to share your thoughts, ideas, and opinions, other guests, other cases, and uh, we evolve as we go along and talk about these. But, you know, this idea of sentencing, uh, it's powerful. And, you know, to have a judge uh, like Judge Block uh, come in and talk about it, but also uh, the, the book gets into it in far more detail, and I know you'll enjoy it. Well, uh, we've got some other really great guests coming up this month. I'll be previewing them on the webpage. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I think we're off to a great start with this season. If you have questions, ideas, comments, again, Go to the webpage, or you can go to wallstromandassociates.com. That's my uh, personal uh, firm webpage. You can contact me on there, and i uh, love to hear from you. Get your feedback and share this podcast. Tell people about it. We really want to uh, make this a, uh, a public service. You know, it's, uh, We want to have these conversations and uh, you know, have something special here. So anyways, we're going to uh, play you out with our, our little bit of music here. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Wallstrom, and you've been listening to uh, Speaking of Justice.